Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. A bit of context, we have finished the story of the flood, ending with Noah planting a vineyard. One of the ways we can summarize Uh, A pattern we've been seeing in Genesis up to this point is a sequence of fall accounts. God created the world good. We've had a description of the results of human sin. So we have Adam and Eve's rebellion in Genesis 3. We have the story of Cain and Abel demonstrating uh, the consequences of sin. We have the flood, another account of a fall into sin, the rebellion of humanity. And then in Genesis 9, we have another account of a fall Uh, the sin of Noah's son in his own household. Flowing from that, we have chapter 10, the table of nations, so a description of the nations after all of that sin and rebellion scattering out over the earth. And now in chapter 11, we have a description of the way that scattering happened. So in chapter 10, there's a description of 70 nations spread out over the earth, In chapter 11, we have one more fall account, a description of humanity's rebellion. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. In our call to worship, we had a vision of the worship of God in heaven. One of the ways you can summarize the book of Revelation, it's a sequence of worship services. And here we have another one, Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We humbly acknowledge that whenever we gather together around your word, this is never something that we control or manipulate, something that depends upon our abilities and efforts, but is a matter of your sovereign work and your sovereign blessing among us. And so we pray now for the presence of your Holy Spirit so that what we experience together as we hear your word proclaimed might be your work, your doing, your ministry to us. We have gathered here as a needy people, as those who depend upon you, not first of all with what we have to offer for you, but what we anticipate receiving from you. And so we pray for your ministry among us through your word and through your sacrament. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have been working through our series together in the book of Genesis, one of the things I hope you have been noticing is it is striking how this portion of God's Word speaks to all of reality, to all of human experience and existence. Every deep thing, every meaningful thing, every big thing about what it means even to be a human being has been addressed in these chapters. We have had announced to us from God's Word the goodness of creation, We have announced to us from God's word the reality of our sin, our human calling and our turning away from what God has called us to be as human beings. And we have seen in the story of the flood the promise of God to remake the world, to set all things right. And we have seen the shape of how God would do that. The sacrifices already offered so far promising the death of Christ on our behalf. In these short chapters... We have seen creation, sin, the promises of the gospel. And one of the most important things we should take away from this, when Scripture feels relevant, when Scripture feels like, as many of you have often said to me, it's talking to me in particular. It's talking about our circumstances in particular. It's talking about the way the world is now. One of the most important things you should take away when Scripture feels that way is that there is nothing new. That God's people gathered around God's word 200 years ago felt like Scripture is describing the way the world is now. God's people gathered around his word 500 years ago felt like Scripture is speaking of how the world is now. You see how I can keep doing this. God's people gathered around God's word a thousand years ago, at any point in history, have felt like 
Scripture is speaking of how the world is now. This is one of the most important things the Scriptures are forming in us as the church. That we exist as the people who say there is nothing new under the sun. God's ways have not changed. There is one reality we are up against, creation and sin. And there is one answer that is announced, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We gather here this morning with all sorts of things on our individual hearts and minds. We gather here this morning with all sorts of particular fears, anxieties, callings, challenges. We gather here this morning with things on the news that tempt us to say, ah, maybe this is something that matters. This is something new. This is something that that in, in a new way is frightening and disturbing. They know all of us in all of those specific needs, circumstances, need this one message of the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to us from Genesis chapter 11. This is what we anticipate. This is what we need. This is what we expect together. Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, does this by this one story speaking to this entire sweep of reality, this entire scope of the world that God's people live in. And we're going to see this in three horizons, three um, places on the timeline that it's addressing. The story of the Tower of Babel, first, as a past event, second, as a present reality, and third, as a promise for the future. So, one of the ways that God's Word does this, that speaks to the nature of reality, to the world we are living in, to the circumstances we are facing, is by plotting those points. A past event, a present reality, and a promise for the future. Another way you could say all of that is that God's Word answers for us when we are. When are we living in the world? First, a past, real, a past event. All right, as I said before our scripture reading, this story comes to us after all of these accounts of falling into sin. The original fall, Genesis 3, Cain and Abel, the flood, the rebellion in Noah's own household. Chapter 10 describes the 70 nations scattering out over the world, and chapter 11 describes for us how that scattering of the nations happened. We are told in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Already we have a rebellion happening. What did God tell Adam and Eve to do? What did God tell Noah and his family to do? To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. They were told to scatter, to fill the earth. And instead, what are people doing in this account? They are instead gathering together. Verse 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now remember the big picture of the story, we just read it. They're trying to build a tower to heaven, make a name for themselves to keep from being dispersed. Instead, God is going to come down and scatter them. He confuses their languages so that they scatter over the earth. Notice at the center of that story, three rebellions. 
three ways that the people are rebelling against the Creator. First, verse 4, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. There is an expression here, and this is often summarized as the main thing, and I'm not sure it is, but it is present here. There's an expression here of they are going to make their own way to God. They are going to make it with this tower, quite likely what we would call a ziggurat, a step pyramid. They are going they have the imagery of a temple, a way of accessing the gods. They are going to, with this tower, build a way into heaven. Another rebellion. And... Let us make a name for ourselves. Now, here it is clear what is happening. The core of the sin, the heart of the rebellion, is their own human pride. Rather than being oriented toward praising the name of the Creator, calling upon the name of God, as we were told earlier, the faithful have been doing, they want to make a name for themselves. And then, the final rebellion, one we already noted, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Three rebellions. They're going to make their own way to God. They're going to make a name for themselves instead of calling on the name of God. And they want to be gathered rather than scattering as God had called them to do to fill the earth. We need to remember those three rebellions. They're a key for how this speaks not just to the past event, but also today, also to the future. The story continues. So you have three rebellions You then, in a way that is intended to be mocking them, we have two ironies. Now, the story happens quickly, and so it can be hard to really uh, feel the irony, to feel the sort of mockery of what they are doing, but especially as Hebrew readers would have heard this, the irony of the mockery would have been clear. The story is arranged in such a way that the beginning and the end are parallel. I'm not going to give you all the details of that, but that parallelness of the beginning and the end results in a clear sense of where the center of the story is. There is a hinge, and that center, that hinge, is what the focus of it is on. Well, what is that hinge? It is verse 5. And the Lord God, or excuse me, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. How does the irony here come out? Well, the language of the Lord coming down, I mean, God is everywhere. He fills all of creation. He is omnipresent. He sees everything. He knows everything. He doesn't need to go somewhere to see something. Israel knew this. And so what is happening when the Scripture speaks of God in this way? We call this anthropomorphism. Speaking of God as though He were like us, The something about us revealing something about who God is, what God is doing, even though we know God is more than. He is beyond what the text says. Well, the image is this. They are going to make a great tower. It is going to reach into the heavens. It is their pride. They are making a name for themselves. With this great tower reaching to heaven, they will access God. They will be the ones who are great. They will be the ones who are accomplishing things. And God can't even see it. That's how small it is. God has to come down to see it. That is how they have failed to do anything close to what they have said. And that turning point in the text is meant to be making fun of them. You thought you were going to make your own way to God. God can't even see your puny little tower. 
Another irony in the account. What is the thing that they say is their goal? The thing they are afraid is going to happen. The thing they don't want to have happen. Everything they're doing is geared toward not just this tower in particular, not just a name for themselves, the pride, but what's, what's the outcome they're trying to avoid? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. How does the story end? Think of the parallels, beginning and end of the story. How does the story end? Verse 9, And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. We have human rebellion, pride. We have God and His sovereignty overcoming it, keeping it from happening, preventing that human pride from happening. Now, there are some complexities in this. Thus far, the story seems pretty simple. There are some complexities. The judgment upon them is that they are scattered. Languages are divided and they are scattered. But what's strange about that is that judgment upon them is actually what God had told them to do originally, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So when we hear the story in its simple form, we typically think of the result being a bad thing. That there was a time that was good, everyone spoke one language, and then because of their sin, a bad thing happened, the languages were divided and they were scattered. But scattering is actually what God wanted them to do. And you have to live in that tension, that complexity of it. But in one sense, there's actually a good outcome to the story. God makes them do what he intended for them to do from the beginning. We can think even of the dividing of languages in this way as not necessarily being a bad thing. God said, fill the earth. One of the results of people living in different parts of the world for long periods of time is languages divide. You know, especially before modern technology where we can communicate with each other easily, if people live in different places, the result is different languages. We should not assume that different languages are a bad thing. What's the complexity? What's the point? The judgment, scattering languages, was in a sense, in a very meaningful sense, what God originally wanted to have happen. And then there's another complexity. What is their rebellion? It is uniting together. Now, in the story of Scripture, is unity a bad thing? Absolutely not. Unity is a good thing. Conflict, division is the bad thing. And yet their rebellion was their uniting. There's a complexity there. What then is the bad thing? If the judgment, the scattering is not necessarily bad, and the unity is not necessarily bad, then which is it? The issue is the pride. The human pride making a name for themselves, making their own way to God. Whether united or scattered, that pride is the problem. That is the danger. That is the thing God is limiting in this account. Now, all those complexities raise what I think are um, interesting, what I know are uh, confronting things that the text needs to say to us, present reality, future promise. But before we get there, the meaning of this text, most of all, is tied up with its connection with chapter 12. And so I want to do something here that I try not to do. It's helpful whenever we look at a particular text to hear that text on its own terms. But chapter 11, to hear this rightly, needs to be connected with 10, 11, and 12. They need to be held together. Chapter 10 
describes all the nations descending from Noah. Chapter 11, the story we just read, describes how that scattering happens. The rest of the chapter describes the descendants that follow from the line of promise. And so we have this picture now of all the nations of the world scattered about. Genesis has in view all the nations of the world. And then chapter 12, verse 1. This will be our text next week. It will be our focus, but it really is the key for hearing this chapter rightly. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Well, where does Abram come from? Ur of the Chaldeans. The same, at least in broad general terms, the same area where the Tower of Babel is happening. The same area from which the nations are scattered. This hinge is so important. When God calls Abram, that's where the special story of Israel begins. That story has in view, it has as its goal, it has as its reason, all the nations of chapter 10 and 11. The scattering of the nations is the context out of which God calls Abram. And then, what does he say to Abram? Chapter 12, verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, for our time together this morning, we're at a bit of a danger point because part of me wants this to be the whole sermon, and we can't. We don't have time for that. We're going to talk about it more next week. When God calls Abram, the beginning, the moment at which the entire story of Israel has its beginning, think of all the stories, the exodus from Egypt, all the time of the kings and King David and the prophets, all of it has its beginning right here. And what does God announce as the purpose, the reason for the beginning of that story to Abram? The reason for it is to bless the nations of chapter 10 and 11. We could say this differently. When the nations scatter from the Tower of Babel, that is setting up what we can call the arena of God's mission. That it is setting up the context for the whole story of Israel as being God's mission to rescue those nations, to bless those nations. Those nations that are scattered are the goal of the story. And so God announces to Israel, the whole reason you exist is to be a blessing to all of those nations. Now there is so much we could say there. Chapters 10 and 11, the nations scattered, that's the big story. That's the main story. Israel, in a sense, is like a subplot, a temporary story as the way that God is going to accomplish the big story of rescuing all the missions. This is the nonsense, for example, of Christians insisting today that Israel has its own story distinct from the church. No, Israel's story from the beginning was not about Israel. Israel was never the point. The point was that through Israel, God would send the Messiah. He would send the Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the point, the goal, was all the nations. It was never the case that Israel was the main point. God has not shifted gears. He has not changed anything. The goal of Israel was always chapter 10 and 11. You could say some of the most devastating, destructive confusions in the Christian church today, especially in response to the news, comes from starting with chapter 12 instead of chapter 11. It comes from starting with Abram and Israel instead of starting with 
creation and fall and the flood and chapters 10 and 11 and all of the nations scattering. The goal of the whole story is that through Israel, the Christ would come to rescue those nations. The goal of the whole story was the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost so that people from, we're told in Acts 1 and 2, people from all the nations of the world would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed in their own language. By the way, it's interesting. It's often said that Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is sent and people hear the gospel in their own language, that that's the reversal of Babel. Now, interestingly, I'm not sure that's the right language. I think Babel was actually a movement forward. God wanted people to scatter. And, and at, at, at Pentecost, we don't have the elimination of different languages. We don't have the languages all collapsing back into one. What do we have but all of those languages hearing the gospel in their own language? And so we read from Revelation chapter 7. And what is the vision of the glory that God promised, the identity of the church? It's people from every tribe and tongue and language. God does not reverse or undo that. He rather has the gospel chase it all down. That the gospel goes into all of those languages, all of those nations, and gathers them together in Christ. That we have in chapter 11, in chapter 11, the promise of what God would do in the gospel. All of those nations are the arena of God's mission. Now we have to move on, but I I want you to hear this, not just in terms of that big story, but hear that in terms of the amazingness of God's grace, the bigness, the wideness of God's grace, that from the very beginning, all that God did whenever he called a special people was always for all the nations. It was always for all of the world. And there is the heart, the character of your creator, the one who called the universe into existence from the very beginning said that the whole purpose of all that he was doing was that through Israel, all of those nations would be blessed. That is the grace of God, the heart of God for you. A past event, ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, This story describes for us a present reality. Much is made in the story, given how short the story is, we can say much is made, of the name. The name of the tower, the word that results. Verse 7, come let us go down, and there confuse their language. Another reference to how the tower so failed, God has to go down there to prevent all of this from happening. Let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, the Lord disperses them. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Babel, there's first of all a play on the name. Babel sounds like the word confusion in Hebrew. And so, Genesis here is making a connection between that sound of the word sounding like confusion and the idea that that's what the name was from the beginning. But it quite possibly was not the only name had from the beginning. In fact, the word here is the word later used for Babylon, and the word Babylon actually comes from another language. It actually means the gate of the gods, an interesting connection with the tower being a pathway to God. But the point to the name is that it is connected with Babylon and using the word Babel is making fun of it by saying it sounds like this word for confusion. The name Babel 
connecting with Babylon. More than just the name, there is the place. Verse 2, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. This is the place, the land, this, this is an area in what would later be called Babylon. And so the connection with Babylon is very clear. And that connection ends up being very meaningful because Babylon ends up being used throughout Scripture to represent the pride of human cultural power and rebellion against God. Uh, We know that literally, historically, Babylon would be one of the nations that would take Israel into exile. But the prophets would also speak of Babylon as representing this bigger reality of human civilization and society in rebellion against God and in their pride shaking a fist at God. The book of Revelation, chapter 18, for example, speaks to the church using Babylon to represent the powers in the world in rebellion against God even to this day. And when Revelation does that, in chapter 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, speaking to the church, come out of Babylon lest you share in her sins and lest you share in her judgments in chapter 18. When Revelation speaks of Babylon as representing the rebellious cultures of the world, it is connected all the way back with this account. And Revelation is saying to us at the church that whatever Babylon represented throughout Scripture, whatever Babel represented in that rebellion in chapter 11 in Scripture, is something you face today. So now what we have to do, right? if we're going to see those connections, Babel to Babylon, Babylon representing earthly human civilization and rebellion against God, now we have to go back to our text and ask... What is Revelation wanting us to see today? What is Revelation wanting us to look around and see as the Babylon that we are up against as a present reality? Well, what was the rebellion of our text? You remember the three rebellions? Refusing to scatter, a tower accessing God, make a name for ourselves. There is a rebellion in our text of a prideful attempt at human unity. A prideful attempt based on something other than God, in fact, claiming to be its own way to get to God, of uniting human beings. A looking around the world and saying, there is problem. There there's are bad things in the world. It's bad that we be dispersed and divided. We're going to solve it. We're going to unite ourselves together on its own terms. There's another thing that happens in the text, and that is then the dividing of people. And we know that because of human sin, the way the story goes, that dividing of people ends up having its own expressions of pride. That that dividing of people ends up resulting in war, in conflict, in all of the horrible things that people do to each other. And so we see both of these realities revealed in the story of the Tower of Babel. What are we up against in the world? There is a tendency to pridefully want to unite people to solve the problem. And there's the tendency to pridefully be divided in conflict with each other. And remember all the complexities we saw in the text. Remember how the dividing wasn't all bad? That God wanted the people to scatter? Remember how unity is not all bad? Clearly in Scripture, unity is a good thing. One of the things God's going to do at Pentecost is unite the nations. And so we see, remember, what what did we have to say? What was the sin then? What was the real problem? Human pride. 
Let's be more pointed. Babylon from Babel tells us of two dangers. We can call one a humanistic cosmopolitanism. Let's just erase differences. Let's just forget about nations and languages. Let's find some sort of principle, whether it be of government or culture or society, and we can unite everybody. If people would just unite around that cosmopolitan ideal, those principles, if we can just unite around it just right, we can solve all of these problems. Or, what's the other thing we are up against? We can call it nationalistic pride. The insistence, the pride in one's own separate thing. And the answer is just to put that first, to make that the ultimate thing. And that what most matters is all of those separate, distinct identities and ultimately pride in that. Both of those impulses that are alive and well in, our, in the world, and always have been, both of those impulses that are alive and well in our cultural time and place are what the church is up against. A humanistic cosmopolitanism, right? The pride that says, if we just follow these principles, these ideals, we can unite people. Or nationalistic pride. Both of them are deadly idols. Both of them are attacks upon the lordship of Jesus Christ. Both of them are refusals to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. And here's what is so fascinating about this. Some of us, when I said humanistic cosmopolitanism, were like, yeah, that's the bad guy, go get it. And some of us, when I said local nationalistic pride, thought, yeah, that's the bad guy, go get it. What do we need to do? Think about the one that you are tempted by. Think about the one that you are tempted to think is the answer. Think about the one that you are drawn to, that you find appealing. Not the person down the pew, because here's what's fun as I look around. I can split us almost in half. Who prefers which sensibility? And here's where that gets really challenging. Neither sensibility is all bad. The desire to unite human beings is not bad. The desire to love one's own particular cultural time and place and the heritage one has received from one's parents is not all bad. Both of them are deadly idols when they are made ultimate. What the story of the Tower of Babel describes continues to be exactly the idols that we are up against as the church today. And brothers and sisters, we need as the church to be different to be distinct, to refuse both idols, to refuse both destructive ways of living, and to proclaim as the church that Jesus Christ alone is the one who can defeat Babel and Babylon. Jesus Christ alone is the one who can unite human beings in him. Jesus Christ alone is the one who can do in a way that is not destructive, that puts an end to war, that puts an end to division. Jesus Christ alone is the one who can set all of these things right. And you see, this is the horror of Christian churches aligning themselves with one or the other, left or right. This is the horror of Christian churches waving the flag, waving the banner of either that cosmopolitanism of some sort of earthly power or the particular pride in human culture. 
Pride in human civilization just is the idol, whichever expression. And our Lord Jesus Christ smashes all of those idols. You see, brothers and sisters, we are called as a church to live in the midst of this culture, the culture described as Babylon, as witnesses, testimonies to a heavenly culture. We are called to be in the world, in the midst of what is described here in this text as an embassy of heaven, as a colony of heaven. Not because we're going to abandon the earth one day, but because God is making the world new and will do so finally when Christ returns. And so we are called to live in the way we live together as the church, in the community we live in and as, as a way that points to that heavenly reality. And what was that heavenly reality in Revelation chapter 7? Not the erasing of all of our differences, but rather the uniting of our differences in Christ. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Christ alone can make that happen. And we as the church are called to live in the world as those who point to that reality. And that means refusing to worship the idols that our culture worships. Third, it's also a promise of the future. When this is described as a present reality, I want us to hear it as a challenge. Each and every one of us is tempted by one of those idols. Some of us are tempted by both. But each and every one of us is tempted by one of those idols. And we need to hear the challenge. Revelation 18 says, Come out of Babylon, lest you share in her sins, lest you share in her judgment. That if we identify with the kingdoms of the world, with the powers of Babylon, with human civilization and culture, then we will be judged with those powers. And that challenge is real. Compromising the gospel is the danger. That is what is at stake. But I want to pause. Hear the challenge. Let it be a challenge. Don't counteract the challenge. Let that stand. But I want us to hear this another way. What Genesis 11 describes is frightening. That human impulse to gather power to itself in the nations of the world is frightening. Babylon is scary. You all know this. So much of what God's people have seen in the news, read in the news, heard about in the world for centuries, so much of it that is frightening just is Babylon. It is human powers, whether it be governments, whether it be military might, whether it be cultural influence, whether it be principles and ideals and philosophies, it is human powers claiming to be the answer, claiming to be able to unite people, claiming to be able to resolve the world's problems. And when that human power gathers together, as we see happen at the Tower of Babel, when that human power gathers together, as it did in Babylon for Israel, as it did in ancient Rome, as it does in human civilizations today, when that power converges, it is scary. Don't be afraid to acknowledge that. In fact, maybe one of the most important things that needs to happen is you need to connect those dots. That that thing in the world right now that you are afraid of 
is described in Scripture as being Babylon. Babel of Genesis to Babylon of Revelation. And it's scary. There's another thing that's scary. And that is that when the nations scatter, when the power is not converged, when it's not at a time of really forcefully coming together, but is rather most divided against itself, and human pride presents itself in all of those scattered bits, all of those scattered places of human expression, when the power, the pride of Hebrews of of Genesis 11, let us make a name for ourselves, when that pride is expressed in the scatteredness. That also is frightening. It can feel so hopeless and despairing that the same things happen over and over. The things that we do to each other, the things that people do in self-destruction, the circumstances that you can't even begin to untangle. How did it get started? Who has the right story? Who's right and who's wrong? Who has the just cause and who doesn't? All of that is frightening. And now, just make, make the most of that. Don't suppress it. Just let yourself acknowledge it. It's heartbreaking, it's fearful, it's terrifying, it's frightening. And now remember that Genesis 10 and 11 and what it describes is the arena of God's mission. It is the very thing out of which God called Abram and said, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It is the context into which God would send His Son to die and rise again and ascend into heaven and send His Spirit. And it is precisely those dark forces. It is precisely those enemies, whether it's the forces of chaos that divide or the forces of prideful uniting that oppresses. It is those very demons that our Lord Jesus Christ came to conquer. It is that darkness into which Jesus is the light that shines. And as we read chapter 11 and that human rebellion and they remember that it is right after that that the good news of blessing to the nations is announced now we get to hear all of this as gospel for us that revelation 18 describes fallen fallen is babylon the great that yes it awaits a future fulfillment when christ returns but it is done in the death and resurrection of christ that that fearful dark power is not in charge that it has been defeated by what christ has done and christ as king on the throne is king over all of it and that is gospel that is good news to enable you to live in this world as light or the fearfulness of the division that is ultimately the message the glory of revelation 7 that Christ promises the day in the future because it's something He has already accomplished in which people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language are united together. And the church is the vanguard of that, the beginning of that, the place where it is first expressed. But it is most of all a promise for the future that God says one day that work will be done. And I know there are so many ways we can look around at the church out there, in here, and we can say, I don't know, I don't quite see it. That's right. This is an article of faith. It is not a matter of sight, first of all. It is something announced and declared by the gospel that in Christ, this is what he is doing and will one day do finally. That all of those things that are fearful and frightening, Christ has defeated and he has promised he will one day complete. 
Moreover, within all of those rebellious impulses, there are good desires. And God promises the fulfillment of those good desires. They are trying to make their way to God. God promises He's coming to you. He has come to you in Christ. He has come to you in the Holy Spirit. And He promises His presence filling the creation when Christ returns. There's desire to make a name for themselves. In Revelation 2, God promises He's going to give you a name. He has placed His name on you in baptism. And He has promised the fulfillment of that in the new creation. There's the desire for unity. It is a good desire. And God promises you that in Christ, in the new creation, He will satisfy that unity in the heavenly Jerusalem. And you could summarize all of it as a desire for home, for settledness, for belonging. And God promises you that in the new creation to come. That all of those human desires represented rebelliously in Babylon and in human division, all of those good desires will be fulfilled in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ when He returns. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.